Insurance companies seemed to do everything they could to block my patients getting access to the care that they needed. That was Dr. David Charles. He is the chief medical officer of the Vanderbilt University Clinical Neurosciences Institute, and Dr. Charles is also the national chairman of the Alliance for Patient Access. I'm Susan Hepworth. You're listening to AFPA's Patient Access Podcast. Dr. Charles, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Susan, for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I have what may sound like a strange opening question, especially for some of our repeat listeners here to the Patient Access Podcast. But that question is, what does it mean to be an advocate? Well, Susan, I guess for me, being a physician, what it means to be an advocate, I often find myself find myself fighting for the patient fighting for the patient to have access to some care that we're trying to provide, whether it be a diagnostic test or a medication or admission to a rehabilitation facility. Um, I find myself advocating for patients, for patients to get access to their care. So an advocate is someone who is standing up and fighting for something, and it sounds like in this case it's fighting for access to those diagnostics or approved therapies that you mentioned. Dr. Charles, can you give us a personal example about advocacy that you have engaged in that has impacted your patients? Oh, yes, absolutely. So my specialty within neurology is an area called movement disorders. And and within that is um, are often people that have a condition, we'll use an example, cervical dystonia. For cervical dystonia, we have great treatments for that condition. Um, many of them are FDA approved and professional um Professional society guidelines often call for those treatments to be first-line therapy. But when they initially became available, insurance companies seemed to do everything they could to block my patients getting access to the care that they needed. So understanding as a specialist what was the best treatment for them, they were often forced to try other treatments and sometimes not even approved for the therapy um, before they could actually get access to, to to the care they needed. So then let's talk a little bit about the Alliance for Patient Access, and I'd like you to talk about the genesis of the Alliance for Patient Access, and what does it have to do with patients, and what does it have to do with advocacy? Certainly. Well, after I had joined the faculty at Vanderbilt University, I had been, I think, four or five years working as a faculty member, seeing patients with Parkinson's disease and related conditions, and then I accepted a fellowship in Washington, D.C. I served as a health policy fellow in the United States Senator on the staff of the, of the Committee for Public Health and Safety. It was a subcommittee of labor at the time. And so in that role as a staffer working on that committee, I often saw physicians and physician groups come to the Hill to advocate for their position. But often when I would go in the room you know, and be with the other staffers or be with the senator that I worked with, I would see that the physicians really often were not always the best advocates. They weren't always well prepared, and they often had difficulty staying on topic for the, for the issue that they were really traveling to Washington to advocate for. And so there kind of lied the genesis for the, the Alliance for Patient Access. After finishing that fellowship opportunity, um, working with a colleague, Brian Kennedy, we set out to form a group a physician group that advocates for patients to have access to approved therapies. And one of, the, one of the primary activities of the Alliance for Patient Access then was training physicians how to be better advocates for their patients to gain access to approved therapies. 
Very interesting. So now, because of your efforts, there is a big national network of physicians who engage on specific policy issues that really impact how patients are able to access the medications and the tests that their doctors prescribe for them. So I'm curious to know about the types of physicians that are part of the Alliance for Patient Access and are there specific types of physicians? Are they always physicians or are there other clinicians involved in AFPA as well? Well, as far as the type of physicians that are involved, it's just about every specialty that you can think of. So within the Alliance for Patient Access, certainly neurologist, which is, is my specialty, cardiologist, hepatologist, those that take care of people with liver disease, infectious disease uh, physicians, just a, a, a number of different specialties, particularly oncologists who care for people with cancer, have become very active within the Alliance for Patient Access. So in short, virtually uh, every specialty in one way or another is represented. There are now hundreds upon hundreds of physicians who have joined the organization from across the United States. Um, added to those physicians are other health care providers, though. So nurse practitioners and physician assistants have increasingly become more active within the Alliance for Patient Access, too. So you say there are so many different specialties that are represented in the Alliance for Patient Access. Do you think that's because these types of restrictive policies by health plans don't just pick one specialty, but rather everybody across the board experiences these access barriers? I certainly think so. As a physician now um, in practice well over 20 years and, and certainly having colleagues across various medical and surgical specialties, you know, what I see with my patients is pervasive throughout healthcare. It's, phys it's physicians and patients who come together and decide on a treatment plan, a course of action, and then as soon as they're finished with that decision and they're ready to move forward with the treatment, there seems as if someone else is stepping into the room with them and making changes to that decision or sometimes, in fact, completely blocking the decision and forcing the patient to try some other therapy before they can actually get access to what their, their physician prescribed. Can you give me a couple of examples of those restrictive policies so our listeners can really understand exactly what it is health plans do, these utilization management techniques? Yes. And I think as I walk through them, people will, will it will resonate with, with people individually or they'll know of a family member or loved one that has faced just about every one of these. Start with one called prior authorization. So you see your physician, and together you make a decision about, let's say you need a scan, an MRI scan, to look for um, something that the physician is concerned about. So you're ready to have the MRI scan. It's been scheduled, but the brakes are placed, and there is this prior authorization. And that means the insurance company is going to stop you from proceeding to get that test, and they're going to review things. They may even ask to talk to the physician. They may want to review medical records. And then they may even conclude that they don't authorize the test that your physician feels you need. This prior authorization problem often happens with medications, too. Your physician uh, diagnoses a problem, wants to prescribe a medicine. You go to the pharmacy. You try to get that medicine or get access to that care, and you're blocked from getting it because you don't yet have the prior authorization. Here's the way it works out in my practice. It seems to be just a scheme to delay people getting access to their care. So there'll be a patient in my clinic that has an appointment scheduled, but then when the appointment day comes, 
they're, they're actually blocked from completing the appointment because the prior authorization form hasn't come through. So the patient's inconvenience, their care is delayed, the appointment's rescheduled, the prior authorization eventually comes through in most cases, but all of the hassle has been forced on to the patient. Missed appointments, delayed in care, so very, very frustrating. And I, and I suspect for many of your listeners, Susan, that one's going to ring, um, ring true with their own personal experience or those of family members. Let's talk about another one, step therapy. Really what it is is fail first if you really if you really think about it. So this is the case where you and your physician make a decision about a certain treatment. Let's say in this case it's a medication. The medication is prescribed and the insurer says, oh, no, 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 no. Before you can get that medicine that your physician wants you to have, you've got to try this lower cost one first. You have to give it a try and only if you fail to respond to it can you actually consider moving to the next level of the next step in therapy. So what that means for the patient practically is you take a medication that your physician never wanted to prescribe to you, and then you have to, in essence, suffer through the time trying that medication. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, you've lost all that time in the treatment of your condition. And many of the, of the insurers now are requiring multiple steps before the patient can get to the actual therapy that their physician prescribed. So step therapy, but really what it is is fail first. Very frustrating for patients and physicians. Very interesting examples. It seems as though the insurance company is trying to play doctor and they are the ones to try and determine the course of treatment for these patients. Um, At the Alliance for Patient Access, we push back on those kinds of policies because the physician-patient relationship is so important. And we need to ensure that Uh, shared decision-making remains between the patient and the physician. I want to pivot and ask you about a letter you recently submitted to Congress, specifically to Chairman Lamar Alexander of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Can you give us a little bit of background on why you and the Alliance for Patient Access sent him that letter and what it is you're advocating for? Absolutely. Well, in short, what the letter is calling for is in essence a moratorium on all of the activities that I just described. This fail first, non-medical switching, prior authorization, and so okay, let's suspend that because the insurance companies and the physicians and the patients are all paying an inordinate cost for this, and the patients are suffering through it while it's all happening. So there's this administration, administrative cost plus the suffering of the patient. So the first thing we call for is a moratorium on those types of activities. Now, to balance things, though, step therapy are trying um, medical therapies that may be effective and be lower cost. Many of our professional societies have come out with practice guidelines. Those are guidelines developed by professional societies like my own, the American Academy of Neurology. Those guidelines are developed by physicians to help guide physicians in the care of their patients. They're not designed by the insurance company, which is always trying to look at the cost of of a therapy. But if you take professional society practice guidelines, there are reasonable steps in medical therapy that could, in essence, save money and at the same time get our patients access to great care. So what we're saying to, to Senator Alexander is, hey, we could have a tremendous amount of savings if we do away with all this administrative burden of fail first step therapy policies, non-medical switching, prior authorization, and then hold the physicians accountable to following practice guidelines. So here's what the experience would be for the patient. 
Patient goes to the doctor, sees the physician, a prescription or a therapy is pres prescribed, and they get it. No barriers put up, they get access to the care. Now, the individual physician would be reviewed. We could do it, say, once a quarter. Every 90 days, the physician is reviewed for adherence to practice guidelines. And if that physician is not adhering to practice guidelines, then there's a period of education. Hey, there's this practice guideline that better directs your care. It's developed by your professional society. And so the physician then could be educated and coached to adopt the practice guidelines of their professional societies. Now, if you had that individual physician who, who just you know, refused to, to participate and understand, then steps could be taken with that individual physician to try to rein in if they're doing some inappropriate prescribing or ordering of tests or something like that. But what the patient experiences on the front end is immediate access to the care that they and their physicians have decided that they need. On balance, this would save money. There's no doubt about it. And what was the impetus for sending that letter? The impetus for sending the letter, well, first of all, I really applaud um, Senator Alexander because he actually put out a call requesting ideas for reducing healthcare spending in our nation. And so calling on anyone and everyone to make idea, to propose ideas that could put the physician-patient relationship at the center, but also try to reduce wasteful spending. So again, applauding Senator Alexander and his team for, for asking for these ideas. That's great. Reducing healthcare costs is definitely a topic that everyone can get behind and very much a hot topic these days. Is there a role for healthcare professionals, other than physicians, advocates, and patients to engage with the Alliance for Patient Access? Absolutely. If you, um, if anyone who's interested would visit our website, it's very easy. It's the allianceforpatientaccess.org. So just all one string, Alliance for Patient Access. Org. On that website, what you'll see right at the heading is a number of physician working groups, and these are inclusive of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare providers. And then just below that, you'll see more than a dozen coalitions that the Alliance for Patient Access helps organize. And within these coalitions, many stakeholders are brought to the table to advocate for patient access. So not only healthcare providers like myself, but patient groups, patient representatives, and others can come together uh, under a common banner to advocate for patient access. That wraps up all the questions that I have for you today. Dr. Charles, thanks for your leadership and for being today's guest on AFPA's Patient Access Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Happy to, Susan. Thank you for the invitation.